Good morning. So good to be here. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. I love getting together with women um, to study God's Word together. It's not always easy to carve out um, the energy and time to do that, but every time I do, I'm reminded of just what a privilege and a gift it is and how encouraging it is to me. So I'm glad we get to do this together today. So I wonder if you've begun to notice in our fourth week of study that John was a man of absolutes. For him, life is all in terms of black and white. I think it's that particular way of seeing the world that causes him to set up so many contrasts in his writing. You know, he talks about dark and light and love and hate and um, truth and lies. I keep imagining having a conversation with him as I've been studying, and he he reminds me of some of, um, just in particular, some of the older men that I've had in my life that are maybe a little bit grumpy who have super strong opinions that they don't really think are opinions. They come across more like facts. It made me think of a time when I was holding it, and I'm not going to say who this person was, but I was holding a cup of Starbucks, and they were like, that is overpriced, bitter garbage. I don't understand why everybody can't drink drink Folger still. And... um, (laughs) And, you know, that's a fact, not an opinion. That is black and white. Or, you know, I don't understand why you'd go to the beach and sit in all that gritty sand and get sunburned. Everybody knows the mountains are a better vacation. And, you know, just that's a fact, not an opinion. And I, as I've um, been, I feel like, getting to know John, I think uh, he had a lot of great qualities and obviously loved well. But I'll bet you he had an opinion like that about everything, that it was real hard, unless you listen carefully, to distinguish between what was a fact and what was opinion. Some of us can track very easily with that way of thinking because we naturally have that tendency also to think of things in terms of black and white. Others of us probably, and I would put myself in this category, see the world more in terms of um, shades of gray. I will go to the beach or the mountains or anywhere else you wanna send me on vacation. I will drink whatever cup of coffee you put in my hands. Um, What struck me as I studied our passage this week is how John sees not just certain categories or topics in terms of absolutes, but really, Today, he's showing us that he sets all of life in, um, down sort of a, a path of contrasts. There's the old way of life and the old life before we knew Jesus, and there is the new life in him after we have known and trusted him that's born out of our faith, uh, unlike when we get married and we want both something old and something new and something borrowed and something blue. John is telling us that our lives in Christ should now be reflected uh, and reflective of only that something new, only the new way of life that we have in him. I wonder if you share my opinion on this. The first few times I read the book of John, uh, especially this summer, as we were getting ready to uh, teach this, I was pretty uncomfortable with his language. He, his directness makes me uncomfortable. I'm growing, however, to really appreciate his directness even when it makes me uncomfortable because his writing lays bare truth. He challenges me, he encourages me, and I hope we leave here today both challenged to pursue a life of holiness with God in everything that we do, but also encouraged by the depth of God's love and provision for us no matter where we are along our spiritual journeys. So let's open our Bibles up together 
to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. So John begins a discussion here. It actually continues through verse 11 about the commandments of Jesus. And in light of the truth that Jesus has paid the penalty for each of our sins, he's now our advocate, I love that word, our helper and our defender, we are to live differently than we did before we knew him. And not a little bit differently, not a little bit better, but truly and radically different, a whole new path. And that difference is going to show on the outside only because of the heart change on the inside. The external is the seen part of us that, that is a reflection of that internal. And everything we'll study today hinges on that truth. Heart change always works its way out into um, what people around us see and hear. When we place our faith in Jesus, of course, we move from being an enemy of God to a child of God. You know, it's literally the most life-altering, history-altering, or eternity-altering decision we can ever make, and yet it's invisible, isn't it? There's not a um, physical change or mark or whatever that comes over us when we move from death to life. Some of us have dramatic conversion stories, but a lot of us have a much quieter story. Sometimes that lack of a dramatic story, or sometimes our lack of a feeling, a strong feeling about um, the Lord, and for a variety of other reasons too. Sometimes we can struggle with doubting whether we really do belong to Jesus. And I think if we misunderstand what John is saying in these verses here, it can actually lead to an even, even deeper doubt than that. So um, I really wanna talk through what he means by this. Understood correctly, John's words can give Christ followers a real reassurance and peace that we do belong to Jesus. So John says in his very straightforward way that the proof of our knowing him is in our actions. It's in the keeping of those commandments. We're gonna talk more about those commandments in a minute, but for now, look with me at John 14, 15 on your verse sheet. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So straightforward. Obedience to God's word is this external, visible proof of our salvation. I liked what one commentator said. He calls this a simple test. Obedience as a way of life gives evidence of our salvation. So when we begin our relationship with Jesus, he, of course, deposits his Holy Spirit within us. That Holy Spirit begins to transform us from the inside out, and we begin to want to know the things of God want to please him. Um, that was an important takeaway, I think, from our study of God, uh, uh, or save John a couple of weeks ago, that John's was a life that was transformed from arrogance and overconfidence to a life of deep love for the Lord and the people of God. 
We obey him with our words and actions. John obeyed Jesus with his words and actions um, because of our love and respect for the Lord. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, That brings about that love and reverence and respect we have for the Lord. And it's only when we begin to grasp that and just spend the rest of our lives dwelling on the glory and grace of our salvation that that faith and respect and love continues to grow. So as we grow in our faith, our desire to know him and to obey him increases. And one of my favorite things about our faith is that that never ends. We will never get to the end of growing in obedience and holiness and faith and trust and wisdom. Um, we, we just never arrive this side of heaven. So there's always um, a way to lean harder into the Lord. Look at what Isaiah 64, 8 says with, uh, on your verse sheet with me. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. We have been created by God to be shaped, to be molded by him into women of holiness and worked out on a practical level. That's going to look like really knowing, really understanding, and really keeping his law and his commandments from his word. Okay, so I said a few minutes ago that these verses should be reassuring. You may be thinking right now that you were anything but reassured because you woke up this morning struggling with impatience, bitterness, whatever your thing was. Until we meet Jesus face-to-face, we are going to continue that struggle. We talked about this last week as well. We're never going to trust and obey perfectly. But for those of us that really know him, we will live lives characterized by a desire to please God, by a lifestyle and a habit of obedience and trust in his word. And I think the frustration even that we feel with our own sin, when you get frustrated with yourself about not getting it right over and over again, isn't itself evidence of our faith and our belonging to him. That comes out of, that's born out of that desire to do the right thing. It reminds me of when Paul says, I don't do the things I wanna do. Before I was a believer, I didn't care that I was a sinner. I cared about getting caught. I cared about some consequences. Um, I cared about what other people would think about me, but I didn't care about pleasing God. So even when we are um, caught in um, an ongoing struggle with our sin, uh, it's a good thing to uh, care about that, to be um, not happy with the place you're in. Um, that's part of that simple test as well. Sometimes we make this agonizingly slow progress as we grow in holiness, but the desire for holiness and those steps we choose to take in that direction are evidence of our salvation, and that's what John is saying here. You know, I think there's another way this litmus test of salvation is helpful because John teaches us that uh, our salvation is not dependent on our feelings. So I personally have never struggled with whether or not I'm actually a believer. I've known the Lord for 27 years. That whole time I have been confident that I am his and he and he's mine. But here's where I, I have struggled a lot over the years, and that is in not thinking I feel deeply in love enough with the Lord. Um, so these verses, I think, can speak to that as well. We don't prove or disprove our faith by our feelings. Feelings are fickle and they're unreliable. The evidence of our love and our relationship with the Lord is in our obedience to him. And I praise the Lord for that, that we don't have to trust our feelings um, 
about, uh, to know that God's love is at work in our lives. Okay, I want to pick back up his thoughts here in verse 7. So if you'll continue reading with me. John says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John continues to talk about the commandments of Jesus here. He ended verse 6 with uh, one of the, I think, most practical and easy to remember statements in the Bible, walk like Jesus walked. That's his directness there. Um, John loves to use contrast to make his point. There's so many of them right here, light and dark, truth and lies, hate and love. Here, he, he's going back to this old and new again. And to me, there's almost something playful in his language here uh, and how he switches back and forth between them, between them. I sort of appreciate that moment of levity because this is um, hard-hitting truth all the way through. I think the easiest way to sort out what he means by it's not old, it's new, it's not new, it's old, is to sort of look at it line by line. In verse seven, he says, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment you had from the beginning. Okay, so what's that old commandment? That is, and we looked at this in your homework this week, that was found in Leviticus 19.18. I went ahead and put it again on our verse sheet. It says... You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, that commandment was part of the law of Moses that Moses received from God. He gave to the people Israel. It was meant to be part of the whole law that governed their whole lives. So what John is saying is, I'm teaching you and challenging you to love the people around you, but that's not a new idea here. Every generation of God's people since the days of Moses have been taught to love each other like this. Okay, but then he goes into verse eight and he says, at the same time, and I think you could also say, on the other hand, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Okay, so what does that mean? So now we've got to look at John 13 on your verse sheet. This is John recording the words of Jesus. So Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And I added the underlined part there, just because I think that's the most important part of that verse there, where Jesus says, as I have loved you, now you are to love each other. So what Jesus did there is took that old law of love and elevated it to a far higher standard. The old law of love was good, and it already set the bar high. We're generally pretty good and understand what it means to love ourselves, so that was already a challenging commandment to people. Um, I think it comes naturally to us that we can pattern our lives um, to look out for people around us and to be good to them and think, okay, you know, that whole uh, do unto others, that has been the the old part of their understanding of what it means to love the Lord and love the world. Okay, but that's not the standard to which Jesus taught love. 
His standard of love was higher and so much better. He said, don't just love people like like you love yourself. Love them as I have loved you. And I feel like it would be an appropriate time to sort of just sit for a moment and let that soak in because um, Jesus' new commandment took what was already a hard and challenging thing and deepened it and transformed it into something so much more than it was before. There's a lot of things Jesus' standard for love isn't. It isn't loving better than the next gal. It isn't loving better um, than we might have before in some ways. It isn't loving even someone better than the wisest and most godly and faithful person you've ever known. Jesus' commandment to love is a mandate given under the full authority of the God of the universe um, that tells us to love every person that crosses our path like he loves us. So I think the first thing we need to know if we have any hope of loving people like this is uh, we need to kind of look at the life of Jesus and see how he loved the people around him. The truth is we could do a study that lasted all year long of the Gospels and just looking at the words and actions of Jesus and how he loved so many categories of people around him. We can't do that, but I do want us to stop and just really ponder for a second. Think back into the Gospels how Jesus loved and spoke so tenderly to outcasts, to people who were not easy to love, people who were sick with compassion and tenderness, how he taught his disciples and crowds at the end of the day when he had to have been so tired and exhausted himself, how he spoke hard truth to people in his world, but he did it with this tenderness and respect and love, how he listened, really listened, I think, to people when they spoke to him, how he prayed for people, um, how he valued and respected women and children in a time where the world did not value and respect women and children, how he loved his enemies, and in his ultimate act of love, of course, how he laid down his life on the cross for all of us, including those who were in the middle of cruelly and reject, uh, um, fully rejecting him, foolishly rejecting him, people who would continue to do that. He loved his friends and family well, but he loved the unlovable in equal measure. And that's the kind of love that he is calling us to now. We are supposed to measure the way we love against the love of Jesus himself. It's hard for me to be here standing talking about this right now because the more I study this, the more I realize how um, short I fall of this. I can give myself a pretty solid A- minus on loving my immediate family well and the people in my life who are easy to love. I'm not really a mean person. I do okay with that. What I don't do so well is love, not just tolerate, but love the prickly people in my life, the, um, just the hard to love and whatever people in my life, and I've particularly been convicted by how not well I love those who are really hard just to understand where they're coming from in my life. And the only way, I'm telling you this now, the only way I can get up here today and talk about this and challenge you in this way is that over the weekend uh, when I was writing this, I had to just stop and put this down and spend some time with the Lord really asking him to, uh, he was already, he kept, as I was writing, he would keep bringing people to mind. And um, so 
I just stopped. I stopped what I was doing. I had some long conversation and confession with the Lord. Um, asked him to keep showing me that, that it wouldn't just be in that day. Asked him to replace that um, not love. There's lots of different adjectives you could call it with helping. Just, I just needed his help. I continue to need his help. We all do. Um, I'm just telling you that because... I don't think anybody could stand up here without having done some real confession work with the Lord before that. So um, maybe you'll need to do that too at some point. I, I asked the Lord to give me his love for those people and remind me over and over what that looks like. It was good and hard spiritual work. I'm continuing to do that. Um, I think, praise the Lord for his word that's hard but good. In verses 9, 10, and 11, John circles back again to his previous thought, which was that those, for those who call themselves believers but don't have those growing habits of holiness um, to back up their claim as believers, they're probably not telling the truth whether they know that or not. Keep his commandments. Walk like he walked and love like he loves. It's a simple truth and a simple plan, but profoundly more difficult to live than just to understand. Therefore, we've got to get up every day, cling to the Lord, abide in him. It's only by abiding in him and clinging to him that we're really going to be able to live like this. Now, let's move on to verses 12 through 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you're, you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. When we begin a new relationship with the Lord, we have the opportunity to grow in relationship and be more like him with each passing day. So these verses are almost like a little poem right in the middle of John's writing. He's already launched full steam ahead into the meat of what his letter is, but it's almost now like he sort of stops and takes a little aside and makes sure he knows we know why he's writing. They're sort of like little purpose statements. There's a, there's a number of purpose statements where John says, I'm writing to you because of this, all the way through the letters, um, uh, all through 1 John. This is a little compact snapshot of those. Um, he is offering us here a picture of what the tra trajectory and the signposts for a maturing relationship with God are. So you see there's kind of three categories of Christ followers here. You've got little children, young men, and fathers. And these terms are probably best understood sort of poetically rather than in a literal sense, but um, certainly in some cases, that progression of spiritual growth absolutely does follow um, the, the literal trajectory of a person's life. When John mentions little children here, and in the um, original language, there is a diminutive kind of form of, of um, thinking about a, a young, innocent child and then the father's um, relationship to him who is gently loving and protective of, um, of his child. He's referring there to new believers, and I remember as a young believer at feeling protected, understood, cared for in a real fresh and new way. I knew 
And it's so fun when the first time you understand that he's orchestrating perfect and wise plans for our lives, um, that he is that perfect parent that you've always wanted. In the early stages of our walks with God, our sins are forgiven, and we begin to know him. We begin to know him on that personal level that we never before imagined. There's a real sense of wonder in that, and I think he tries to capture that here. When John addresses young men, he's referring to those that are growing, but still young in some sense of their face. For most of us, um, and I think this is a broad and long-lasting stage, probably where the majority of our spiritual lives will happen. Uh, It's a a long-term part of our spiritual development. Here we are learning day by day in big steps or little steps to lean into God, to trust him and obey him. We're learning to know him better through all those spiritual disciplines, prayer and reading his word, um, learning from good teaching and lots of other ones as well. We are growing in holiness and learning to overcome Satan through the power of the Holy Spirit in this stretch where we are young men, young women in our faith. About fathers who represent those who are mature in their faith, John says the same thing two times. He says, you know him who is from the beginning. I think this is a place we all aspire to, the place where we have deep understanding of the things of God that come only from years of knowing him, where we have that deep and abiding faith where we have seen him walk with us through hardship and valleys and come out the other side um, and never leave us or forsake us. And that's a firm and steady place. And I think that's where we point our eyes toward that kind of mature faith. It isn't easy, but it is a reliable path. As mature believers, we walk In light and in truth, we continue to grow in wisdom and faith. I love Proverbs 20, 29 on your verse sheet. It says, the glory of the young is their strength. The gray hair of experience is the splendor of the old, which made me wonder why I spend so much money covering the gray hair of my splendor just this week. I place myself squarely in the young man category here. Like I said, I've known the Lord for 27 years. I know him more, I trust him more, I believe him more than I did 27 years ago, but I'm nowhere near where I wanna be. I'll bet most of us could say the same thing in one form or another. Jesus is offering me and you, each of us, a walk um, just as close to him as we will allow. He's offering us a life of hope and peace and joy in increasing measure just as much as we want that. He will meet us there with it. But I think John would tell us we don't get it just by wanting it. Growing closer to Jesus like that requires those disciplines we talked about. It requires the time and the energy and the effort and the prayer and the fellowship with other believers and the confessing of the sin and the choosing obedience, even when choosing disobedience feels better to us in that small moment. So my challenge for all of us is to step into purposeful spiritual growth every day, no matter where we are along our spiritual journey, um, no matter where we are, stick with it. And I'm saying this to myself just as much as to you. Okay, I want to finish up today um, with some really life-changing verses in 15 through 17. You think that it's only, they're three short verses, or there's a lot to them. So, when we leave behind our old life and begin our new life in Christ, we have this new loyalty to the Lord that replaces our old loyalty to ourselves. 
So I think we have to look at these verses in much the same way we looked at verses three and four. John isn't, wasn't saying then that if you ever sin, then you aren't a believer. He was saying that as true Christ followers, we will follow the habits or lifestyle of obedience uh, to God's word. In the same way, he's not saying here that if you ever put something else before the Lord, then you aren't a Christian because then none of us would be. John is saying as we grow in our faith, we will increasingly desire the things of God over the lesser things of the world around us. And we will increasingly spend our time and our resources furthering the kingdom of God. So what exactly does John mean when he says, don't love the things of the world? That stands out to me a little bit as a real churchy sounding phrase that you might have no idea what it means if you haven't spent much time um, studying God's word. Here the world means all the things that are influenced by Satan and tainted by sin. And when he talks about the desires of the eyes and the pride of life um, and the desires of the flesh, he's talking about that craving we have for pleasure beyond what God has provided for us the things we're greedy for, that is a harsh word, I think, but there's truth in it. In it. Um, the things that we're greedy for, again, beyond what God has provided for us. Okay, so now that we know what those words mean, I want to talk about what it means for us. One author I read said this, and I really liked it. He said, anything in a Christian's life that causes him or her to lose his enjoyment of the Father's love or his desire to do the Father's will is worldliness and must be avoided. So I just wanna say that real quickly again. Anything in a Christian's life that causes her to lose her enjoyment of the Father's love or her desire to do the Father's will is worldliness and must be avoided. So there's nothing new under the sun. The struggles that John singles out aren't new. Uh, In our context, worldliness looks like a lot of different things. Uh, It might look like envying something that somebody else has uh, that you don't have. It might look like um, longing for what somebody else has with far more intensity than you ever long for the Lord. Um, I have found myself more times than I wish um, sitting in a pew in this room thinking, I wish I had that person's shoes, talent, hair, vacation, handwriting on her notes, whatever. As a former teacher, I love things like that. Um, but I will tell you, I, I will tell you that I have found it impossible to simultaneously soak in God's word and grow in my love for him and think about how I want that other person's stuff at the same time. Um, and that's just my story. We all have a different struggle with that. I'll bet you if I said, everybody stop right now, take out your pen, you could list 10 things in this world that if you were honest with yourself, you desire more deeply right now than um, even in the moment, even if it comes and goes, then you desire the things of the Lord. And the truth is those things are ultimately worthless. Um, They steal our affection for the Lord and our joy. Paul says this in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. Here's the key part. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, 
But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And life and peace is ultimately what we want when we're craving what someone else has. So he flips this on his head here and he tells us, if you want life and peace, set your mind on the things of God, on the spirit of God. I think that's a great verse to cling to when we are um, struggling with seeing the stuff of the world right in front of us that seems so attractive in the moment. And I'll tell you another thing that you totally intuitively already know the things of the world never satisfy for long it's never enough um it satisfies for a while and then it's just so quick when you want that next thing or the more or something different we were made by god to find true satisfaction and joy only in him and so that really is the only place we're really going to find it the effort we spend chasing the things of the world that don't have any lasting value are probably um, doubly wasted because we're not we're both pursuing the wrong thing and not pursuing the right thing at the same time um, i think that makes it a really good tool of the enemy and i think that makes this, uh, these few verses here ones to go back to over and over again. The truth is Jesus is just better. Only he can give us that rich and satisfying life, that joyful life, the peaceful life that we really all want. John doesn't tell us to love Jesus instead of the world because he wants life to be dull and drab and he's grumpy and he doesn't think we should have any fun or pretty things. I loved what one leader said in the leaders meeting this morning. She pointed out a great truth that Jesus gives us good and lovely gifts for us to enjoy. There is nothing wrong with that. Um, we want to enjoy the things that are given from the Lord's hand. What we don't want to do is um, try to get more or different than what God has for us because what he has for us will satisfy us fully if we let it. Resist the lure of the things of the world. That is so hard, but resist the lure of the things of this world. Lean hard into the good things of God. It won't be easy. It's not easy. It's so worth it though. In contrast to the things of the world that don't truly satisfy and that don't last, we as Christ followers have the privilege of being a true friend of Jesus, knowing he's ours and we're his forever, knowing him who is from the beginning. I think going back to those verses 12 through 14 and all the great gifts those are is a, um, a real concrete way to combat that um, lure of the shiny things of the world. It's so much better than anything else we could um, ever need anything else that the world could offer us. Look with me at this last two verses on your verse sheet here. I'm gonna look first at Psalm 34, eight. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then I love 2 Corinthians 5, 17 because it again sets up this contrast between what is old and what is new. And it says, therefore, if, anything, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That old has passed away and the new has come. And that's who we are in him. So I'd love for us to just praise the Lord and pray. Lord, you make all things new. Thank you, thank you so much for that. Thank you for um, moving us from death to life with um, your sacrifice. Thank you for um, giving us your spirit so that we can be women who cling to you, 
um, deeply and above all else. Thank you for giving us just the ability to enjoy you. I am asking that we would enjoy you more, that we would ponder the great and good um, gifts that you have given us, the identity we have in you. Um, I'm asking us to help you believe you more deeply. Um, you are strong when we are weak, Lord. We, I'm just asking that you would bless us as we pursue you and the things of you um, in our daily life, Lord. Um, would you help us to do that? It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.